How are you doing this Thursday? How are you? How are you? You well, it's me, Richie Allen, with you between now and 7 o'clock with a Thursday's programme, the 4th of November 2021. Reach me today through the website richieallen.co.uk. I look forward to hearing from you, your opinions and whatever else. Let's do the show then. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, it's going to be a busy old show today and a a busy old show it'll be. Uh, Kate Shemarani joins the program this hour, the natural nurse in a toxic world, co-founder of the British Nursing Alliance radio presenter on Sons of Liberty as well. Uh, Kate Chemerani on the programme will talk, I suppose, vaccine mandates and more with uh, Kate, who was on the programme with me back in July. Looking forward to that. And a bit later on, I'll be joined by Anna de Buisseret. I hope I pronounced that right. I've been in touch with Anna today. Anna is a senior UK solicitor and a retired army officer, also one-time Pfizer management consultant will talk the law and you and mandates and more besides with Anna on the programme. Kate Shemarani, Anna de Buisseret on the Richie Allen Show, Thursday's programme. Yeah, I thought I'd give you a chance to do a bit of tap dancing there. I said that yesterday. You said that yesterday, you lazy, baldy bastard. I did. I said that yesterday, Michael Flatley. Indeed I did. Indeed I did. I'm your BBG then. And what what will we start with? Just a couple of funnies, maybe. Well, the things that make me laugh. I've said this a thousand times before. Before I do that, though, the, the golden retriever Leia was two yesterday was two yesterday and we only went and forgot her birthday. What kind of fuckery is this? How do you do that? How do you forget your child's birthday or your child? Just a golden retriever. That's all she is. But she was uh, two yesterday and became a woman. She became a woman and we forgot all about it. She can tell her therapist about it one day, I suppose. And she can blame us when she's caught stealing other dogs' tennis balls, maybe. I don't know. They forgot me birthday! Right, that's how mad it's been. Just been busy around the last week and a half. We've had a bit of painting happening at BBG Towers. The entire house is being painted. At the moment, the first time it's been painted. I'll keep saying painted. Since we moved in two and a half years ago. Our friend and neighbour is doing it. Top man. Good guy. But it's still a big upheaval, isn't it? Even when you like the painter. Just a big upheaval. I suppose only because these days we're working from home, all of us. Well, we are. I am and the oft-mentioned future missus is. But any time you do anything to your house, it's the same anyway, isn't it? Whether you have a bit of tiling done, it's all a bit of upheaval. But uh, we're all getting on well. Nobody has stabbed anybody to death just yet. Some mad shite coming out of Glasgow at the old COP26, (laughs) which has been abandoned, hasn't it, by anyone who matters or 
anyone who mattered. Billy Gates has gone back to his crypt. Uh, Macron has gone back to the teacher that uh, had sex with him when he was a minor. Uh, Biden is asleep under a tree somewhere. Justin Trudeau is just a dickhead. And Boris Johnson is in London. They've all left the conference. But some funny people have been left behind. And some of the stuff coming out of their mouths is breathtakingly funny and breathtakingly bullshit. Here's a, a little clip of Stella McCartney. Now, I wouldn't put Stella's clothes on a tranny, to be honest. But but what do I know about clothes? Uh, here's Stella losing the run of herself just a little bit. Go on, Stella. Swapping out for animal products, which account for so much deforestization. Every single second, a um, hundred football pitches are cut down every, you know, in the rainforest. So, you know, we have to stop the animal agriculture side. So we're looking at those solutions here. We're also showcasing the first ever vegan football boot that we did with Paul Pogba. What? What? You made a vegan football boot for, 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 for Paul Pogba? What kind of fuckery are you? <laughs> you made a vegan football boot for Paul Pogba. Well, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has tried everything, Stella, and he's still fucking shit. Maybe the vegan football boot will get Paul playing well again. But, you know, let's go back to what she said at the beginning of that clip. What's happening in the Amazon again, Stella? Deforestization. What? Deforestization. Say that again. Deforestization. Deforestization, yeah. Right, what else? Every single second... Um, a hundred football pitches are cut down every, you know, in the rainforest. <laughs> every single second, a hundred football pitches are cut down in the rainforest. <laughs> ah, go on, you have to hear that again. It's just beautiful. Every single second, um, a hundred football pitches are cut down. <laughs> Every you know in the rainforest they are because of deforestation. Deforestation wouldn't put her clothes on a tranny, but that's just me, mother of divine jeepers. Good one, Stella. Every single second. <laughs> My mathematics were never good. How many football pitches are cut down in a minute? Stella McCartney, eco warrior. Right, to some serious news. Here's the proper nuacht. So the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Authority, otherwise known as the MHRA, has this morning approved the world's first oral antiviral treatment for COVID-19. The pill is called Lagevrio, Lagevrio, and it's man manufactured by Merck. You can take it as a suppository as well. You can't, I made that up. It's just a tablet. It's Merck. It's the first oral antiviral treatment for COVID-19. And the UK was the first to approve it. A woman called June Rain. Yeah. So uh, the MHRA says it's safe. It reduces the risk of hospitalisation and death in vulnerable people. I'm doing that thing with my fingers. Vulnerable people who've got mild to moderate COVID. It'll cut their risk by half. 
Sajid Javid, the health secretary, said the drug's approval marked a historic day for our country. The UK is now the first country in the world to approve an antiviral that can be taken at home for COVID-19. It'll be a game changer, said Sajid Javid, for the immunosuppressed and the most vulnerable. It's groundbreaking, he said. And June Rain said, La Gevrio is another therapeutic to add to our armoury against COVID. It can be taken by mouth rather than administered intravenously. It's important because it means it can be administered outside of a hospital setting, she said, helping before COVID reaches a severe stage. June Rain. Do you remember June Rain? Do you remember her, that woman, what she said when she was asked the question in front of a common select committee? Let me dig out the clip now. You think I would have would have done it a bit earlier. You think I would have prepared, you know. It's not as if I didn't have hours to prepare the programme. Let's get the clip. Let's get the clip. Do I have the clip? No, I don't. Why? Because fucking need it, Richie. That's the one. I don't have it. But she basically told a Commons Select Committee that she saw the role of the regulatory authority. She saw it as, as providing access to big pharmaceutical companies. She didn't say, well, you know, uh, hang on, hang on. I've got the clip. Hang on. Here it is. This is what she said when she was asked... What's the role of the MHRA? I wonder uh, if you would mind just explaining uh, to us, for completeness of, uh, of the evidence that we're gathering, the importance of the role of the MHRA in allowing medical products and devices to, to come into uh, uh, use. Our role is to, in a nutshell, enable access, but the uh, evidence that we require is that the benefits outweigh any risks and therefore we take every care scientifically and in terms of our robust procedures to ensure that these standards are met. Yeah, you said your role is to enable access and then you mumbled about standards. All you are is a conduit between Muggins here, that's me, the Baldy Baxter you're, you're talking to, their, her role is to be a conduit between pharmaceutical companies and the great unwashed, i.e. you and me. Yeah, June Rain, eh? You want to be that guy for two seconds, June Rain? Absolutely not. Yeah, by the way, Merck brought us ivermectin years ago, back in the 80s. It was uh, anti-parasitic. And they found out pretty quickly that it did great things for for uh, for 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 anti it, that it was an antiviral as well, basically spit it out, Baldy. They found that it was pretty good with respiratory infections. Doctors have been using it for years. I don't have to tell you that because you know, you know it all, don't you? You know everything. A microbiologist told... I can't get over Stella McCartney. I, I just can't. It's just class, isn't it? Every single second, a um, hundred football pitches are cut down every, you know, in the rainforest. <laughs> sure they are, Stella. Right. A microbiologist told Talk Radio this morning that he would be pre prepared to wear a face covering for the rest of his life. Dr Andrew Preston told Julia Hartley Brewer that he doesn't think it's that much of a, an imposition to, to wear the old face covering till the end of his days. <laughs> so she suggested to him that the evidence is that masks prevent transmission is flimsy, 
they had a bit of a back and forth. It's kind of interesting. Let's have a listen to some of it. There's a difference between taking the very direct measures of not seeing your own grandparents, for example. That's a very proactive thing if you think you might be at risk of passing on the virus. And then there's the sort of the background. So maybe not wearing a mask if you go into a shopping centre, whereby you could possibly be picking it up and passing it on to other people. So there's those two very different levels. But but, but, a second, but that no, but I, I'm not going to wear a mask in a shopping centre. I don't wear a mask. In fact, when I'm legally required to, and I actually can't physically get on a plane without wearing a mask, I do not wear a mask. I have a mental health exemption because I'm too sane to wear a random piece of cloth over my face, uh, which does absolutely nothing and, and in, impedes my ability to interact with other human beings. I think saying it does absolutely nothing is actually not it, well, correct. I take it, it's, it's a small effect, but actually... Ty, I mean, infinitesimal, and that's not even... If no, it had such a big... Hold on a minute. Why have Wales and Scotland, which still have mask mandates, why have they got same rates, in fact, Wales, higher rates of COVID than we have in England? They kept loads of the restrictions, which we're told might have to be brought in because they'll keep us safe. If that were the case, Keir Starmer, he apparently wears a mask all the time. Keir Starmer's got COVID. If masks do such a great job... Why is there not some really clear, obvious proof that they do? I'm not saying they do a fantastic job, but it's a case of if there's perhaps some sort of mitigation that can help reduce it to some level and it's not having a massive infringement. So I guess your It is a massive infringement. Be, Being asked to cover your face is a massive infringement. To me, it's not a huge effort. Andrew, do you work at home? Do you work master. at home, Andrew? Yeah, we'll leave that there and we'll skip on. We'll skip on. He does work at home sometimes, but other times he doesn't work at home. Let's skip on a little bit. I'm I'm well at the point, well past point, where I'm sorry, I, I want my life to be completely normal. I don't want any restrictions on my or anyone else's life. When I mean, what number of deaths a day would make you stop wearing a mask? I really don't know that, to be honest. Julian, that's a really... So honestly, you may, well, you may well wear a mask when you're interacting with other human beings for the rest of your life. In some circumstances, so getting on public transports in the winter, because I don't necessarily want uh, a nasty cold or flu, to me that, that really doesn't bother me. So it comes So have down... you worn a mask on public transport or at previous winters then? Uh, no, I must admit I Why haven't. Because, because actually this has now brought it into focus that there is something that actually might help me stop picking up that. And that's my personal opinion if I want to do that, okay. surely. Yeah, oh, I'm absolutely. not going to force it on other people. Oh, no, I'm not I'm... going to. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so intrigued by people who say they're still going to continue. I, I, I want to know: Do you have an end point, or, or do you, are you going to be wearing a mask until your grave? I, this is the bit I find really difficult to understand. Yeah, I might well. In, in, in winter, when there's high levels of other respiratory viruses, whether it be COVID or not, I might choose to wear a mask if I'm going into a crowded environment for the rest of my life. Yeah, I might, because I really don't find it a significant imposition to do that. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. That's a, a boffin speaking to Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio. Earlier on today, this is the Richie Allen Show. The time is quarter past five. It's uh, the 4th of November 2021. Uh, do contact me through the website, the menu bar, Comment Life. That's on richieallen.co.uk. Ah, there's so much more to tell you this afternoon. Will I read one or two comments before moving on? I will, sure. Sure, I will. Why not, sure? So I'll do that then. Good evening to David Keane. Hi, David. How are you? Hi to Steve and Pirate Roberts. Hi to Lucy, who says between Stella and Matthew, the guy regarding being hospitalised because of his jab, that's a classic. Ah, Lucy, you've only gone and done it. People, of course, won't remember those bloody clips, so now I've got to play them. 
I had the vaccine. It put me in hospital for a day. But I haven't moaned. I've had the second one. And it put me in hospital for another day. <laughs> but I'd much rather have that than COVID. Yes, I'll keep taking vaccines, no matter how many times I get hospitalised because of the side effects. Why on earth should somebody who has refused to have it take a bed that I might need if I have a bad reaction to it? <laughs> yes. Why should you have a bed if you've not had the jab? If you've not had the jab and if you've not done your civic duty and you get knocked down by the number 57 bus in Piccadilly, you shouldn't be allowed into hospital. They should keep that bed for me just in case I have another adverse reaction to another jab. That was a thing of beauty. Thanks, Lucy, for bringing it up. Never hear that too many times. There are not enough... There isn't enough time in the day to hear that. It's great stuff, then. Okay, right, I'll stop reading the comments and I will move right on because there's so much more to get into with you today. Let's talk about... um, Let's talk about... uh, Will we... No. Daniel Jolly is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Northumbria. In case you didn't know, there's a university there. He was on talk radio today with Ian Collins and they were talking about conspiracy theories. Have a listen to Daniel and his uh, his thoughts about conspiracy theories and theorists. Daniel, the professor. Every significant large event has a conspiracy theory associated from the moon landing, all the way up to vaccines, all the way up to COVID-19. And as you articulate, they actually can be a danger to society, but also to individuals. Because of course, someone who believes in a conspiracy, they believe in that, they point the finger at those in in power, they're doing shady things. Well, of course, they don't want to follow the advice of the government. So a key example of that is following the advice around COVID-19. Because if they believe it's all part of a conspiracy, why would you follow their advice? Similarly, it's also been shown wanting to kind of call out the conspirators. So, for example, with violent responses. So again, if you believe 5G is the cause of COVID-19, you may be likely to want to, you know, set fire to a 5G tower, which we saw across the country last year. Which, for someone who believes that is the cause of, of, of COVID, it's a rational thing to do. But of course, actually, it's based in misinformation. It's based in biases and heuristics that can make this conspiracy seem quite appealing. So I quite enjoyed your, your, your speech beforehand because it really kind of articulated the psychology of conspiracy theories really, really well, where it's important that we do humanise because these people, as you mentioned, could have other things going on in their lives. In a way, conspiracy theories are a sense-making function where believing in a conspiracy offers a very simple solution to what is offered very complex problems. Yeah. And these complex problems can make us feel anxious, uncertain, perilous. So a conspiracy offers some comfort and at least tries to make us feel better. I say try because whilst they're quite appealing, they're not necessarily satisfying. Because of course, if you are drawn to a conspiracy because you feel anxious, well, actually believing that there's people out there conspiring against you and your group could actually increase your anxiety. So actually, they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily help in any way. I, I I thought something was deeply wrong in this sort of recent wave of conspiracy theories. Yeah, we'll leave that there. None of that should come as any surprise to you. It's boringly predictable, isn't it? It's all very plagiaristic almost, Daniel, there. I'd love to read his dissertation. Uh, this senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Northumberland. You're with the Richie Allen Radio Show. It is, of course, Thursday, November uh, the 4th, 2021. Let's take a tune. And when we come back, 
We'll be chatting with Kate Shemarani. Looking forward to that. That'll be interesting, of course. Kate will be standing by. And a little bit later on, the lawyer Anna de Buisaret joins the programme. This is Bob Seeger. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Took a look down a westbound road. It is at 24 and a half minutes past 5 o'clock. Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. And roll me away. RichieAllen.co.uk, the very top of the page on the menu bar. Comment live. Huge interest in in my guest. I'm delighted that she's uh, agreed to come back on the programme. Uh, we spoke back in July and I got in touch with her today and, uh, and said, listen, come on and have a chat with me about what's been going on. Uh, today and other days, but around vaccine mandates and this news today that the government doesn't want to pursue NHS workers uh, to 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 compel them to, to demonstrate that they have been jabbed at least until next spring. Uh, my guest is uh, known as a natural nurse in a toxic world. She co-founded the British Nursing Alliance and is a radio presenter on Sons of Liberty for Health and Wellness. Delighted to welcome back to the programme, Kate Shemarani. How are you doing, Kate? Welcome back. Oh, hi, Richie. And it's a great pleasure to be back on. I, I like a good hard one. So <laughs> as it were, excuse the pun. Yeah, but I like a good hard interview. Go for we, it. <laughs> listen, we left that behind back in July. You were a great <laughs> you, you were a great sport, actually. I said I'd invite you back on and I'm a man of my word. So let me read you a message from Steve, Kate, and then I'll shut up and you can have a good chat there. Steve is a nurse who's been on with me a few times. Uh, nice guy. He's still working in the NHS. I know you have worked in the NHS, of course, yourself before. Steve says this to me. He says, Richie, I see this morning that The Guardian are reporting that NHS staff will face mandatory vaccination from next April. Apparently, the delay is so that those like myself, they want to fire... Uh, will help them through winter pressures first before being fired if they want to rub our noses in it to help them out before uh, sacking us, says Steve. What do you think of that when you hear that? Well, we have to remember that um, all of the tactics that are used by um, our government, the lying liars of lies, are inversions of what they're actually doing. So if you look all over the world at every single country, they're following the same format. And all over the world, nurses and healthcare providers are being told that they must be, and let's use the right terminology here, injected, because this is not a vaccination. It doesn't fulfill the legal definition to be so. Um, They must be um, injected, certainly with the first one, by a specific date. And what um, is actually happening is they're being made to feel like um, they're not doing their part, they're not working as a team. When in actual fact, when when one looks at what's happened, particularly with the National Health Service in this country, it's being retracted. So you have already, and I was a steward for Cozy in my early 20s, and I'm I'm coming up to my 56th year now. Um, You've seen already, everything's already been privatised. And then we look at all of the services that have been closed or certainly have been um, scaled right down. And I know that at at the first lockdown, we were told that the NHS was at least five years behind and they had neither the resources nor the staff to catch up with that. So they'll always be trailing. So I 
I do think we heard Rishi saying, you know, they're going to have to dip into the pension pots. I do think this is all beautifully following their agenda, their plan. And uh, The Guardian actually, just digressing slightly, did report by stating compulsory vaccinations were going to be coming in in April for NHS staff, which is very different to mandatory. They're two very different words and the legalities of them are, are different also. But I do think that this is all by design. The NHS can afford to lose these staff. Otherwise, um, they wouldn't even be doing it in April and they wouldn't be doing it like they are now in the care homes. They can afford to lose these staff. They've planned for it. It's a way to get rid of services, to save money, to transition it over. And it's exactly what's happening. Um, that's hang, hang on, Kate, hang on. So, so you think that... They're they're happy to do this because the plan all along was to privatise by stealth. So certain procedures, certain departments will be privatised as a result of the problems that they've created themselves. So they'll create these problems. They'll say, as you said there, we're down nurses because nurses won't have the job. They should have the job, but they won't have the job. We're losing staff. Look, we, we need to bring in public private initiatives or we need to we need to farm out a lot of what we do that's what you expect to happen next year well I, it's already it's happened, already happening. Richie. it's already happened it's been like that for many years first they privatized all the domestic services um all of them and i remember that in the 80s and they um, privatized all the cleaning contracts and where we had eight cleaners in in a theater suite they gave us one well, of course, that's theatre suite then ended up filthy, infections rose and so on. But, you know, when they talk about they're going to get rid of staff and they're going to put in uh, military or use um, agency staff, well, many of these nurses work in very specialised areas. And also in your area, that's when you really begin to learn. You only do your nurse training. But your real learning continues on the job. Uh, and actually, Florence never wanted nurses registered for that reason. She said it will stop them learning. So what you have is them saying they can bring people in, but they simply cannot. Uh, um, all, you know, clinical specialities, they can't do it. And this is where we've already seen problems in the past where you have agency staff who end up effectively running units and then it's not their specialised area. They don't know where equipment is. So if this were indeed a pandemic and this were indeed about health, the health of the nation, the last thing you would be doing is saying to your healthcare professionals and semi-professionals, you were OK to be used on the 31st of this month, but by the 1st of this month, you're not. Yeah. And so the other thing is as well, they are using a, a terror technique. The press are using this as well. They are terrorizing the public with, with lies. And they're using a, a standard um, torture technique that the Red Army use, which I always talk about, the three Ds, disability, dependency and dread. So what they're actually saying is if, if you don't all put pressure on one another, and do the right thing, you know, your patriotic duty as every man, woman and child. And we've heard that before with the Spanish flu, which was experimental injections. Um, then everyone else is going to suffer. Well, just to put a little caveat in here, I am in touch regularly 
with several whistleblowers. One is at a very large hospital and very senior in London, hands-on, frontline, and these uh, these professionals are seeing the effects of the injections, not only on the patients and the relatives coming colleagues, their colleagues are getting sick. And um, this particular nurse told me a couple of weeks ago that they are now backed to ventilating patients in a London hospital. And the nurses cannot understand why. They feel that these patients pushed onto ventilators when they don't need to be because of course once you ventilate you have another problem with vent pneumonia you have a portal into the lungs and infection and the nurses do not understand the rush or the need to ventilate patients that aren't requiring that need so it's almost like uh, and and actually, the best way to actually name the government is if it sounds impossible, it's possible. It's almost like this cre- this emergency is being created so that the finger can be pointed back at the public. And we, we see this brainwashing. Where at the unvaccinated complete... public, you mean? At the unvaccinated yeah, public? Well, yeah. Yes. And also, uh, we must use this correctly. This does not stop transmission. This does not stimulate an immune response. So therefore, why would one take a risk with an experimental, untested, unlicensed, uninsured injection? We saw something very interesting. On on that point, the Lancet Journal has recently published something that obviously nobody in commercial or national media has picked up, but we should talk about it. And that is they, they looked at somebody who had been jabbed and then developed COVID and found that the jabbed person with the COVID had a similar viral load to the unjabbed person with the COVID. I mean, that's major information, that. Yes, the all of the information is out there. Everything is out there. I've been talking about this for almost two years and I was mocked and ridiculed. You don't have to be educated or even qualified in medicine to take yourself off onto PubMed and start searching and looking up these studies. And they are all there. And and when, when we look at inquiries, and there have been many inquiries in my in my career in nursing, and, and they put all of these measures in place, um, lest we forget, should this happen again. But of course, these things continue to happen. Now, in in, in what we're being told here, that it's almost like the government's turning around and saying to us, well, you know, you've gone along with it. And it's not the government that are actually mandating many of these things. It is providing employment that are mandating. The government is washing its hand, hands of all accountability here. You know, they don't make masks, and they give you get out of prison clause. You know, you need to wear this or this. It's not the government that is imposing these mandatory, I certainly haven't heard compulsory yet, apart from the government stating it. Um, the government wants the private the sector to drive this. Employees. Is, isn't that right? From what I can see, the government or or the government advisors, they ultimately, in the future, they want the private sector, they want businesses to to run this system, you know, this system of coercion. You must have your jabs. Ultimately, they want private business to do it, don't they? At least that's they how do. I see it. Yeah. They do. They do. And um, nurses themselves, um, they are first and foremost accountable 
to their code of conduct. And I would urge every member of the public to go onto the Nursing and Midwifery Council website and pull up the Code of Professional Conduct. And you will see every single point on there. These were put there to protect the nurses themselves and to protect the public. And nurses have to sign every year that they have done the right amount of hours to practice, the amount of study to practice, and that they are adhering to their code of conduct and every three years they must revalidate and when when you go through this I mean the very first one uh, one of the ones that I picked out respect and uphold people's human rights so they the nurses themselves are to respect and uphold people's human rights and that's your human right is, is body autonomy so we are supposed to advocate for our patient at all times and these are nurses as well that are running it respect support this is in it Act as an advocate for the vulnerable, challenging poor practice and discriminatory attitudes and behaviour relating to their care. Well, as a registered nurse, you're not only accountable for your own actions, but you're accountable for those of your colleagues. So should one see a colleague coercing even another member of staff, then you have a duty of care. And this goes on and on. So it's for nurses to state you know, I don't want to have this. I believe that I'm putting myself at risk. I'm putting my colleagues at risk. Uh, Pfizer have already spoken about how uh, these spike proteins can be transmitted. To your question about the the NHS being privatised, Richard, yeah. we're seeing that everywhere. We For see years, a complete yeah. dichotomy between NHS and private. And when you go into private, it's very different. You don't have to provide a test as an outpatient. You get past the, the drill squad on the door. Have you got a mask? Have you got this? Have you got that? You just walk in authority and go in because you're paying and, and paying a pretty penny um, for Bupa. And I actually did ask Bupa. They won't cover you for any uh, um, effects, negative effects following a COVID-19 vaccination and injection. Bupa won't cover you at all. And they won't pay for you to have it. That's right. That's very important. That's really important that people understand that. You're not covered by your medical provider. Excuse me, by your insurance provider. If you're injured by one of these jabs. I wonder how many people know that. My guess is not many. I actually asked them. I contacted them. And I have Bupa. And people say, well, why do you have that? You know, I had an aggressive cancer and a reconstruction. And, uh, you know, it's my one luxury. But I, I can tell you, I see a very big gap within private health and NHS and people cannot afford uh, private and it's getting more and more expensive so that very few will be able to afford it. But what I see now is the the very um, uh, wealthy and and all of these uh, private uh, pension providers, which is not the NHS pension, they um, all have their investments in pharma. All of our government officials, they all invest in pharma. So you have a conflict of a interest A huge conflict of interest, of course you yeah. do. I don't conflict know if you're of aware of this, Kate. I don't know if you're aware of this. You might not be. Um, last year, the, the chief of the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency, June Rain, was in front of a, a common select committee and was asked about the MHRA's role. And you would imagine the answer would have been, well, to, you know, to scrutinise medicines, to turn those medicines inside out to ensure they're safe for consumption. She didn't. She's, her first answer was, we see our role, she said, as providing access. 
What an astonishing answer. We see our role as providing access for the big pharmaceutical companies. There's no doubt about I mean, We might come back to that in a moment, but I've got to jog back about 10 minutes. You said something important. Um, I believe you when you say that nurses have said to you, we're seeing things on the wards that we don't like with people being ventilated that maybe don't need to be. And we are seeing people coming into hospital with, with p- potentially with vaccine injuries. I don't doubt that they're telling you that. There's a tragedy here, though. Where, Kate, are they going to go with that information? Because I know well, for well, a fact that the, the media doesn't they, want to hear from them. Go ahead. Yeah, I can tell you exactly what happens. Uh, I have a group of nurses from Denmark contact me. They'd gone to their own superiors. They'd gone above again. They were afraid. They're seeing postpartum bleeds of one to four litres. They're seeing the neonate baby, the newborn, dying shortly after birth or shortly before birth. They're seeing a huge rise in uh, a problem where the blood pressure goes up in the pregnant mother and she starts to secrete a lot of protein and the kidneys begin to get into trouble. And they've got nowhere to go with it. Now, all over this is happening in Australia as well. I had um, some nurses contact me from the Midlands and the North Midlands. And they were even telling me, now remember, GP services, all of your GP practices are privately owned and the GPs are partners. So again, you have a profit making business. And these nurses were being told when doing the training not to draw back when they inject First of all, they draw the vaccine, uh, the the injection up into the syringe, and then you're meant to prime the syringe so that the liquid is in the hub and right to the end of the needle. No air in there. Then you go directly into the deltoid muscle, and then you should pull back the needle and wait several seconds to see if there's blood comes in your syringe. And if you do get that, you remove it and you start again, the whole process again, because you don't want to inject into a blood vessel. Now, we now know, Dr. Malone has gone through this, that This uh, injection does indeed uh, dissipate into the entire circulatory system. It doesn't remain in the deltoid muscle. And you have migration, distant migration of this uh, messenger RNA. And we're seeing this affinity for the spike proteins in the eggs on the ovaries, the follicles, in the heart, the pancreas, everywhere. Now, these nurses were being told because these are specific amounts of messenger RNA in each and each vial had two and a half injections in there. And the nurses were being told not to prime the needle, not to draw back and wait. And they were told to get four injections out of two and a half injections. So in other words, two vials should be five vaccinations, but they were ordered to get eight out, which means that the doctor's practices can then put in another invoice for another three patients that they're not paying for the vial. I mean, this is a money-making machine. And these Danish nurses, look. have they gone to no, this was Danish meetings? Oh, sorry, this is here. told me about the injection. Yeah, and, and of course, we're back to this thing again. Who will they tell? They might tell their superiors. They might be told, listen, everything is fine. Get back to work. The media doesn't want to know this. This is the problem, isn't it? These yes. um, nurses are are there. They've got this information. It's vital that people hear it. And all they're left with really is coming to radio shows like this, really, and one or two others. And even then, they're taking a huge risk by doing that. It's, yeah, they it, were. Yeah. Look what happened to me. If you yeah. speak up, yeah. you go before the NMC. And I did indeed resign. Yeah. I resigned from them. They broke our contract. 
which means they broke due process by not following the protocol. So when they speak up, they're told, and it goes right to the top, the senior nurse in London told me, their superiors, she said, it comes right from the top. They know what's happening. They're all following the same orders. And it's a heads in the sand. Now the nurses are getting sick. Another nurse in a, a, a doctor's practice, she told me that the doctors aren't having the injection, but they're ordering all of the rest of the healthcare um, centres staff to be injected. And then the nurses cannot then go to the NMC. I've gone as a McKenzie for one. And there are many, many more nurses who are now facing suspension and they'll be struck off like I was. Because if, but, if they're caught, if they are if they are discovered talking about these things anywhere, the consequences will be suspension or being struck off, right? You're well, they, they will be struck off. Almost yeah. seeing doctors as well. And they're being threatened. They're being blackmailed. Now, if one goes through the NMC code of conduct again, you'll see all the way through the contradiction that that's exactly what they're meant to do. And they've got nowhere to go with it. Well, um, we have Dr. Kevin Corbett and myself have set up um, it's Health Guardians and will be trading as the British Nursing Alliance. We have many, many nurses. We have a Telegram page, British Nursing Alliance. But we are about to have a meeting in London. There are many nurses from these London hospitals who have contacted um, myself through one of these senior nurses. And they want a meeting because they don't know where to go. And they don't want to take it. They don't want to harm anyone else. They're seeing the harm happening, which can only gather pace when you look at the adverse events on the MHA, MHRA the card, yellow card yeah. reporting scheme. And remember, that's only ever 1% of those that will be uh, reported. You're right, so you're 1%. Kate, let me jump back in. There, there are those who have a theory that some of the jobs will in fact be a, a saline solution. And some, 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 some credible people have suggested to me that that might be the case, that knowing that these jabs will cause harm, maybe great harm, to, to large swathes of the population. And because these jabs are meant to be forever, boosters and boosters and boosters, and then, of course, mRNA and DNA jabs, not for COVID, but for other things. These are jabs that are planned for five years' time and ten years' time. There are some who believe that in the very early stages of this rollout, there might be a deliberate policy of giving saline solution to some to minimise the adverse events. What do you think when you hear that? Well, the messenger RNA, your own messenger RNA, is it's an exact reverse photocopy of your DNA. So they're giving you a certain amount, and each of these injections has different amounts in. I think it would be highly suspicious and the urgency of which they're rolling this out and they're, um, they are coercing and threatening the public to get it, which, as we yeah. know, you know, the, there's 900 pages of that in the Nuremberg trials, eight tons of evidence of that very fact when they've done it before. But I think the urgency should always make people deeply concerned of which they are rolling this out and I, I personally, this is my personal opinion, is that they have to stagger this and they have to also um, negatively imprint you with many other things. You know, we keep seeing on the side of buses, children have strokes. 
Uh, so they're, they're putting all of these things in front of and all these sports personalities that are all dropping down with heart problems. If you took a million people and they were all sick and you put them in one city, you would notice them. But if you took a million people that were sick and you spread them out all over the you know, Great Britain, you're not going to notice it as much. So there seems to be a deliberate staggering of the amount that get it, the ages that get it. I mean, for children, if one does d- indeed believe that there is a virus which has never been isolated and proven to exist in humans. So that's the end of that. But if you do, this has a 99.998% recovery in children. Yeah, so that's there's right, yeah. no need with that to give them an injection. Kate, can I pull you up on two things there? I don't want to um, waste any of our time debating this stuff. We could do, and it it would be friendly and uh, respectful. But as for the the virus not being isolated, I fully understand why you say that and believe it. But I have seen papers, and I have referred to them on this programme, papers published by people who claim to have isolated and sequenced the virus. So I'm not convinced either way i'm not saying you're wrong but i i can't come down on any not that it matters what i think because what i think doesn't matter but from my own personal point of view i'm not sure whether it's true that it's never been isolated and it doesn't exist or or whether it does exist that's just just the one thing and the second thing i understand why you mentioned the sports people but that's anecdotal. You're probably referring to the Barcelona player, Sergio Aguero, who used to play for City, who's had a problem with his heart and he might he might have to um, retire. And of course, we all want to know, did he have the jab? But we just can't be sure yet. And I think, again, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of being irresponsible, but others, when they jump on these cases and say, oh, look, it's the jab, we just can't be sure of that. Sadly, well, we'll I, never know, will we? I think one has to... I think when when you see why they are giving this and the rationale and the push, um, there comes a time when anecdotal evidence has to be considered. Uh, and you you know when you think that there was under thirty deaths from the swine flu injection in yeah. order for them to stop and they it, stopped it. Yeah, you're right. So we have to look at the fact that we're now seeing in this country alone up to 1,800 deaths, plus over a million adverse events. So there does come a time when, you know, I I am a trained and qualified independent nurse prescriber. And if it was a drug that I was regularly prescribing and someone came to me and said, do you know, since January, we've seen 1,800 deaths using that drug, I would make a decision there and then not to use Uh, it in my practice. So this is where nurses... Um, they are accountable for both their acts and omissions. And we we have to start standing together and not um, standing um, and remembering as well that the, the NMC, the Nursing Midwifery Council, were taken over by the government in 2001. And our NHS was taken over by the government last year. And whenever you see any healthcare being taken over like that by the government and we look back uh, through history, it's at times of great tyranny. Yeah, it doesn't and I, end I'm well always for concerned when we see that. And it was Henri Bevin who set up the NHS, free healthcare for all at the point of source. So when I see um, this happening and we are constantly told, stay home protect the NHS and as a result people people aren't receiving the care 
that they should get. And let me tell you what, every single one of the nurses that has come to me over almost two years, and there have been a lot, and doctors, they've told me the same thing. The hospitals were empty. They were, they, a lot of them felt very guilty. Um, a lot of them were, were frightened to say anything. They knew they'd get into trouble. And one nurse said to me, a lot of them were absolutely enjoying it, which is shocking. And that, unfortunately, is the nature of the beast of humans. Um, they were enjoying it. But, you know, I uh, people know who know me know I'm a Christian and God always collects his debts. And so when patients um, have lost uh, the care that they require or they've had unacceptable care, um, then now is the time that everyone is going to be facing um, some battle because now it's come to their doors. The nurses who worked during the um, unlawful lockdowns, when people were losing their homes, their jobs, um, they couldn't feed their families, they were using food banks, and many of the emergency services were going to work and being paid full pay. Well, now it's affecting them. And I can only urge them to come out and join us at the British Nursing Alliance, because this is a very new um, uh, service we intend to put together where the nurses will be trained in integrative nursing. And I, we are in touch with nurses in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, America, and they are doing the same thing. And Kate, so it's what will all over? What will those nurses then eventually do? Will they will they work in private practice? Well, we aim. We have some core objectives and aims, and I'm more than happy to come on the show with Dr. Corbett and go through them because it is fantastic. Um, we aim that we provide true nurse advocates on the ground in communities that work together. Uh, we aim to have a, a mobile units and those nurses will be trained by many doctors worldwide on not only, we're all trained and qualified anyway in allopathic, but they'll be trained in how to recognize, to diagnose and to treat illness, to avoid illness. I mean, something so, so simple. We're seeing scurvy again. And you only need about 65 milligrams to keep you over the precipice of dropping below that. Would You'd have scurvy and yet patients are getting scurvy through lack of vitamin C. So there's no need for them to get those illnesses and require pharmaceutical drugs and hospitalization when they just need advice. And of course, lack of vitamin C leads to disease. And that's how people can, can um, you know, guard themselves through several things that they can take. I'll tell you what I'll do, Kate. I'll make a deal with you. I'll I'll make a deal with you. I will get you back on to discuss that plan in more detail. But in the time we have left, I wanted to talk about something else just very briefly. And that is the push. I've noticed this in recent weeks. It's been so coordinated, the push to get pregnant women to go and have the jab. Now, you mentioned pregnant women earlier on and some of the stuff that the Danish nurses were witnessing and nurses here. Um, you're a mum, of course. When when you were pregnant, I suppose your doctor would have been incredibly careful with um, with you in terms of what you might have been prescribed or given. Um, I've asked friends of mine, the women I've known for years, you know, to, 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 to go back to when they were pregnant and they said that they just took nothing you know, it was it was understood, like, just don't take anything, don't take any medicine, unless it's absolutely necessary. And yet they're really going hard at women to have well, this first job, of right? All, 
that those women that have been vaccinated so far in the first 20 weeks of pregnancy, four out of five of them in one study have lost their pregnancies. They've they've had a spontaneous abortion or a missed abortion. The baby's died. Four out of five, which is outrageous. Now, I can give you both sides. I had a single pregnancy, a twin pregnancy, then a single pregnancy. And I also have been a nurse for 36 years. I've worked within the midwifery sector when I was doing certain parts of training. Now, I never had anything. Once I was pregnant, you're absolutely correct. And even taking certain antibiotics, you cannot do it because you have 40% more circulating blood volume and whatever you take goes into your systemic circulation and it's going to enter your child's. So you have to be very careful. Now, from the vaccination point of view, one of my children had chicken pox and they only did a teeter level. They didn't want to vaccinate me because I was pregnant with twins. And yet now, We're telling pregnant women that not only do they need to have this COVID shot, they're giving them the flu shot. Now, interesting about the two things together is neither have been tested together for their efficacy. What that means is if you give a drug, it will have an effect on the human body. You can give another drug and that will have a specific effect. You give those two drugs together and you can have a a profound effect that could be life-threatening. So you're giving a pregnant woman two injections that have not been tested together. I mean, it is utter madness. It is scandalous. And we're going to see an exponential increase in interuterine deaths and neonatal deaths. And then if we then look at the fact that these spike proteins have an affinity, they have a liking for the follicles on the ovaries, it's going to become more difficult because then when you inject them a second time, the body started to make antibodies as well for the spike proteins. So now you get more spike proteins going to the ovaries. And what do the antibodies do? They start to destroy your own tissue. So now you're going to have a generation that is more than likely sterile. Do you think, Kate, that that this will be concealed? We, We know that those responsible, I think we can safely say we know, will attempt to conceal it? Will it be easy to conceal that? Or will it be so obvious that the public, the wider public will will have to, to notice it? Well, we, we have to look at, because it's untested, unlicensed, uninsured and experimental, there's no liability on the pharmaceutical no. companies. Uh, the government isn't mandating them, so there's no liability there. The workplace is mandating them and also head teachers allowing in um, injection teams onto their premises thinking that they are impartial. They are not under health and safety. They are accountable. But ultimately, who does the book stop with? Well, who is pulling the trigger of this shot? And it's the nurse and the doctor because they are professionals they're not injectors they're professionals and they come under their code of professional conduct so when they inject this and they don't know what's in it they don't know how it works the trial is ongoing so we're only in the first phase so we're only seeing short-term effects we're not even seeing mid-term yet never mind long-term so Who does that accountability stop with? Well, if the nurse is injecting the patient, not knowing anything about this, and she can't tell the patient, then she cannot gain 
true informed consent, which in a court of law means it's medical battery and it's criminal harm. So he or she will stand in court as a living man and woman, accountable, and all their assets will be on trial. The, the public can go after that. So I'm, I am actually quite passionate that nurses are going to be the patsies for this, because one thing that history teaches us is there will always be someone that they will want to stand trial for this. And when we look at, you know, children that have died, that have been um, known to social services and they maybe have had, you know, 30 admissions into the paediatric A&E and, and then they say, well, this one should have noticed and this one should have noticed and, and the doctor should have noticed. But ultimately, there will be a couple of people and it will be one social worker who will take the rap for that. And, and that's how it's always been done. So I, this is why I keep saying to the nurses, you have to stand together, say no to this. You know, this is much bigger than their mortgages. They're having a job. And, and I think I've discussed that on this show before. Um, if you read the, the trials, the Nuremberg trials, it's very sobering. When you read the reasons that the nurses gave for using experimental vaccines and drugs on prisoners without consent, it didn't stand up under their own statute. And they stood trial, they went to prison, and some of them hung. So I think that there will come a time where there will be those that are accountable will be made to stand trial. And there is always a paper trail. All of those vials, when they arrive, all of the batch numbers will be recorded for that patient. Whoever's working on that day, their name is recorded. And nurses actually do have a duty that when asked for their name, as it appears on the um, NMC register, or their PIN number, their personal identification number, and there is good grounds for us to ask for it. And if an indictable offence is being committed, or you, you believe one is about to be committed or has been, which this is, medical battery or criminal harm, they must give you their name and their PIN number when it's requested or they are in breach of their code. And I think, yes, I think in the future we are going to see trials for this and this will go down in history as a genocide and there will be trials. And I know many countries now are setting up new Nuremberg-style trials and a lot of nurses are getting very nervous. But there's a lot at the moment who also believe sadly, that they are above the law. Or maybe are not aware. And they're behaving so. Yeah. And there's probably many who are not aware of their legal obligations, uh, whether they've been told about them or not. Look, we, we'll leave it for there. Uh, leave it there for now, Kate. Thanks for coming back on. It's really interesting uh, stuff, this. It's terrible to be talking about it, but it's happening. And it's going to be a very interesting next few weeks and next uh, few months. Remind, before we do part company, you, you mentioned Telegram. Where can our listeners find you online? Well, I've just been banned again off YouTube. Off <laughs> of YouTube. Join I'm the club. Up. Join well, the club. We have, we're on Telegram as British Nursing Alliance. There's two pages, one that myself and Dr. Corbett post on. 
And then there's a page that's, that you can all post on. Uh, we do have a new website being built, but I'm also on um, Rumble, BitChute, brand new to Brighton. And I am now starting to post um, our natural nurse report. But do look out and come on to the British Nursing Alliance because we are now gaining momentum. We will have this meeting. It has took a long time. But uh, we aim to be elite nurses that the public can 100% trust, that cannot be employed by an institution. They can be put an invoice in, but ultimately these nurses will be the true patient advocate. And that is my vision, Dr. Corbett's vision. And I, or anyone who knows me knows if I say I'm going to do it, then it's done. Godspeed to you, Kate. Thanks for coming Thank back. Thank you very much. We'll look after we'll look after yourself and we'll we'll certainly talk about uh, these subjects again in the near future. Kate Chemarani there, live on the Richie Allen show for Thursday, November fourth, twenty twenty one. It's a what is it? Coming up for four minutes past six. Let's take a tune, then I'll read your comments when we come back. That's what I'll do. I'm the BBG, live from BBG Towers. This is Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah, Hootie and the Blowfish, and I only want to be with you on your Richie Allen show. Thursday's one, the last of the week. It's the last of the week. Sure is. Ah, stop riding the faders, Baldy. Stop acting the Egypt on it. All right, I'll stop acting the Egypt on it. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, good to catch up with Kate Shemarani again. Angela says, Kate was inspiring, Richie. I would trust her nurses 100%. I think Angela is referring to the nurses that have been in touch with Kate Shemarani and her colleagues. Neil says, Richie, hypothetically, if an employer demands you must sleep with them... Under the threat of losing your job, is this now acceptable? I think not, says Neil, who thanks me for keeping him and the wife sane in Warrington. Yes, I'm here all week. Thanks, Neil. That reminds me of not indecent proposal. That was Woody Harrelson. Wasn't Michael Douglas in a film with Demi Moore based on a Michael Crichton novel? where Demi Moore was the boss and she, well, she fancied the arse off of Michael Douglas. So she did. And she put all manner of pressure on him to jump into the sack with her. I can't remember the name of that film, you see, because I've got a bit of the uh, dementia today. And now you've got to apologise just in case anybody who has dementia is uh, offended. Not to worry. They won't remember in a few moments. You bastard, Baldy. Sure I am. Sure I am. I've always been one. <laughs> oh, God. Hi to Alice Cooper, who says, ask her about the dancing nurse videos. What were they all about? Alice, we covered that extensively last year, didn't we? Didn't we? The TikTok videos. Weren't they? Well, bizarre. Remember that time we were being told on the BBC and ITV, and Sky News, and RTE, and NBC, yes, and MSNBC. They were telling us, ah, sure, the hospitals, ah, sure, they're rushed off their feet. Sure, they're dying in the corridors. And then a video would come out of a bunch of doctors and nurses doing the can-can, with costumes on as well. 
Jesus, you look queer busy there. You look fierce busy there, so you do. We were saying. Oh, yeah. And, of course, to make it even more vaudevillian, the mainstream media often replayed these TikTok videos with people like Kay Burley saying, you know, aren't they great on the front line there? <laughs> they are, Kay. Sure they are, girl. They are. Yeah, they're great with their dancing. It was vaudeville. That's what it was, you know. That's what it was. Hi to William, who says uh, Richie Barcelona reported a while back that 99% of staff and players are jabbed. Also, on isolation, it's part computer assumption, so make of that uh, what you wish. You know, some of these sports people, and there have been a few who've had cardiac issues, we we can think of two high-profile players. Obviously, Christian Eriksen, who used to play for Tottenham, is one. It happened in the Euros, didn't it? Sergio Aguero. But I was right to pull Kate up, not saying that she's wrong. We don't know, you see. you, you I'm not speaking about Kate now. I'm speaking about myself. You either want to be a journalist or you don't. There's no in-between, you know. Yes, it might suit the narrative that the jabs are dodgy if people are... Um, Going down, Alan, for example, in Liverpool says, Richie, it seems odd that Sergio isn't the only one. There have been several in different leagues and countries. Absolutely right, and it might very well be jab-related, Alan. I wouldn't say it isn't, because uh, how would I know? But we kind of don't know either. So as a journalist, I would say that should be looked at more closely. Is there anybody connected to the players that we could sit down with? Is there anybody connected to the players that we could email to ask, is it a vaccine injury? The fact is, we we just don't know. Shall I introduce our next guest then? You're very excited, so you are, that uh, she agreed to come on the programme. One of the most requested guests, actually, all year long. It's about time that um, I invited her on the programme. If you've got anything to... To, to comment, if you've got a question, send it through the website richieallen.co.uk. It says comment live on the menu bar. Do that and um, we'll get through them. But I, I've got the questions to hand anyway. I'm just going to get out of her way. My next guest is a senior UK lawyer and a retired army officer and was at one time a Pfizer management consultant. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme as a lawyer and a the the Buisseret. Now, Anna, if I've butchered the surname, put me right and I'll apologise <laughs> profusely and I'll never do it again. How do I pronounce your surname? No worries. Hello, Richie. Lovely to talk to you and hello, everybody who's listening in. Thank you all for listening in. Um, it's the Buisseret. So the you Buisseret. just pronounce the T at the end. You did a pretty good job, actually. I, I should be ashamed of my life because my French missus said to me today it will be the Buisseret. So uh, <laughs> apologies. Thanks for taking the time because I know you're crazy busy. In in a few moments in your own time, you might talk us through the law around medicines being mandated for people. You, you've all the time you'll need for that. But I'd like your thoughts, I suppose, firstly, on the news today that the government still plans to mandate jobs for NHS workers, 
but that it won't go after the NHS staff until the spring, presumably because they've got enough problems in the NHS with uh, the forthcoming winter. What are your thoughts on that, Anna? Well, mandating an experimental medical procedure is totally against the law, um, both international, domestic and uh, European law. Um, And it breaches the fundamental inalienable right to bodily integrity, which everybody has. And due to that fundamental inalienable right to bodily integrity, everyone has the right to accept or refuse treatment, um, even if it's life-saving treatment. Okay, that's enshrined in our laws. So given that this is experimental, novel um, genetic treatment in the case of Pfizer and, you know, viral vectors in the case of AZ, a lot of it using, um, as I say, novel uh, technology, there are no long-term safety data. There are known risks, material risks, including serious adverse events such as death. Um, And therefore, you know, mandating that um, is effectively a breach of somebody's right to life as well as their right to bodily integrity. Um, and the right to life includes the right not to be tortured or given cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment. Now, that includes medical procedures without obtaining um, lawful informed consent freely given. So even if somebody's consenting to this on the basis that, you know, they're going to lose their job, that's not lawful consent because clearly they've been coerced into it. They've been put under duress and that makes the consent unlawful. Now, can I jump in there briefly? The government might think, I I don't have... I have very little understanding of the law, so thank God you're here. But the government might say, yes, Anna, fair enough. Um, We're not going to force it on people, but we have a right. And maybe they might say that private companies uh, do have a right to say, we feel that the unvaxxed person is a threat to the safety and the well-being of everybody else. So, of course, you're free not to take it because of the laws that you've um, touched on there. But we also have a right to say, well, that's okay, but we don't want to be around you. Uh, Well, again, they don't, because fundamental principle of law is we're all equal under the rule of law, and we all have the equal protection of the law and the right not to be discriminated against um, on any basis. So that includes health status. So again, the idea that they can discriminate against a whole bunch of people because they're unvaccinated is against international, European and domestic laws. It'll need to be tested, will it? I I would imagine right now that your inbox is bursting at the seams, (laughs) right? I would imagine it is because in recent weeks I've had registered nurses on the programme from the UK, but also from Australia. And um, lovely people, eloquent people, but terrified that I had a lady from Australia on called Yana, um, 15 years in the job, almost vocational for her, Anna, loves it, loves doing it, and is terrified that it's going to come to an end. It'll need to be tested. Are you confident that if you got in front of um, a judge that you'd be able to, to take that forward and you'd be able to win those cases. That's all that people want to know from me today. Richie, will, will, will we get to court and will we win? 
Well, it's already being taken to court in various other countries around the world and, and this one. And, you know, different results are being given out in different jurisdictions because, of course, you can present the best case with the best evidence um, and the law is there in your favour. But if you're in front of a judge who has bought the narrative or who is being compromised in any way, you know, you're not necessarily going to win. So um, I'm not necessarily confident because at the moment, unfortunately, the feedback from the lawyers around the world is that they feel that the judiciary has been compromised either through the brainwashing, because the expert evidence of our expert psych sorry, I use the term expert, um, like the government does, the expert psychiatrists and psychologists who have been analysing the psychological methods that have been deployed um, on the population in order to obtain compliance, etc. Their evidence to me is that the, there is military-grade psychological warfare being conducted on the population. Military-grade? Military-grade. And indeed, as a veteran, obviously, I'm working with a whole load of the veterans who are also analysing the situation. Um, and those of them who have served in Afghanistan and Bosnia and such places have recognised the, the, the psychological warfare techniques that are being used that are now being used on the civilian population. Did you know last um, year, Anna, did you, did you know last year, did you feel last year when this began that something was very wrong with it? Oh, absolutely, immediately. Yeah, my hackles went up the moment I heard that there was a so-called virus released in a wet market. Um, I think that's partly because, you know, I've been trained in nuclear, biological, chemical warfare. And when you go through that kind of training, your hackles are permanently up for any kind of threat. Um, So, yeah, straight away. And in fact, what happened was that I was diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2 during the course of January because I became very ill on the 27th of December. And so I spent six weeks in bed and I actually did think I was going to die. It was horrendous. But I spent that time researching nonstop about what was going on, including gathering intel from the ground from uh, a former army colleague of mine, another army officer who was working as a teacher in China um, and had been for 10 years. So he was well aware of, you know, the propaganda and, and the way stories are told. So we spent a couple of hours on the phone with him telling me what was really going on in the ground in Beijing compared to what we were being told over here in the rest of the world and and vice versa. And we analysed it and both of us said we felt that it was some kind of bioweapon attack um, for a multiple set of agendas and we both felt that we needed to report it into the military. Well, that was back in January Um, And then I contacted an SAS friend of mine and told him he also felt it needed to be reported into the military. And I've been working with the veteran um, network ever since, um, gathering intel and reporting in what we can. It's amazing. Your experience is amazing, really, that your career. You're, you're listening to Anna de Buissere. Anna is a senior UK lawyer, a retired army officer, and at one time was a Pfizer management consultant. We might touch on that uh, in, in a few minutes as well. Needless to say, inundated by people that are dreadfully concerned that, you know, some of them are in care. And I don't have to tell you next week, 
you know, care workers face losing their jobs if they haven't had the job, if they can't prove it. Somebody said to me today, God love him. He's a gentleman who works in care in Manchester. Got in touch with me and he said, oh, Richie, he said, maybe that um, they've kind of given a stay of execution to the NHS workers. He said, maybe they'll give a stay of execution to the care workers as well. And I won't lose my job next week. This is wretched, Anna, that people are going through. This. It is heartbreaking. I'm guessing you're right. Richie, I'm getting so many messages. And if anybody who's listening in has messaged me and I haven't got back to you, um, I'm so, so sorry. I just, you know, I'm a volunteer and I don't have a huge team around me to do, you know, to answer everybody. So I'm really not able to cope, I'm afraid. But what I would say to people is the Workers of England Union are getting some great results and they've been getting, um, you know, they've been working with a number of the care staff and NHS staff. Um, Now, what I would say to everyone is, first of all, you know, as an employment lawyer, you know, an an employer cannot unilaterally impose a term of your contract which requires you to take an experimental genetic treatment, right? So even though some contracts might have a clause where someone's agreed to certain injections in order to travel, for example, that's been agreed beforehand. You know, an organization does not get to unilaterally impose that. Um, The second thing is that under the health and safety at work legislation, if an employer feels that it's necessary to impose it in order to manage the spread of a pathogen in the workplace, they must, it's a legal statutory duty, provide the individual with an individual risk assessment, health and safety risk assessment, and it's health and safety and well-being. And that's under uh, Regulation 3 of the Health and Safety at Work Management Regulations 1999. Now, what that um, regulation requires the employer to do is prior to introducing a policy or changing the term of a contract where they require people to undergo some kind of medical treatment or procedure, which, for example, wearing a mask is, taking a test is, and, you know, being injected is, because they all breach bodily integrity, they're all medical procedures. So prior to implementing that, they must give each individual a risk assessment. That has to be conducted with an occupational health physician in the occupational health department. And if they don't have their own internal one, they must employ an external one to do that. That has to be given to someone prior to mandating any of those measures, as I've just said. And it has to be an individual one because we are all different. There is no blanket policy that is lawful because people have pre-existing conditions, for example, where wearing masks or testing or taking an injection could put their life at at threat, right? And they'd have that right to life and not to be given medical treatment without their consent. So they have to therefore be informed of all the risks and all the harms that might happen to them. And the employer doesn't know that unless that person is given an individual risk assessment. So they can't say it's safe and effective and it's going to be okay. So the individual has to have that risk assessment with a physician they have to, that physician has to go through that person's, um, you know, previous medical history um, and assess the harms and benefits to that individual of those measures. If the harms outweigh the benefit, then they cannot proceed with those. It would be unlawful because it will cause harm to the individual. 
So um, that, uh, and for example, with these um, COVID, so-called COVID-19 vaccines, if you take the um, Pfizer one, for example, the patient information leaflet, the manufacturer's own information leaflet, specifically says that you should have an allergy test to all of the ingredients. Well, there are 11 ingredients listed. We now know there are some that haven't been listed. The active ingredient is called BN162B, which is the nucleotide synthetic mRNA food. And then there are 10 other ingredients. Now, first of all, who has had an allergy test to each of those ingredients? Secondly, where do you get them? Thirdly, if you're going to have an allergy test, you need it done well before the appointment so that you can get the results and consider them. Fourthly, where is the allergy test for the combination of those ingredients for the individual? Yeah. Right? So if you don't know what you're putting in your body and whether it's going to kill you because you might be having a severe anaphylactic shock, which people have experienced, it's recorded on the... Um, adverse repent, you know, recording systems, and people have died from it. Okay, so this is no serious. I mean, this is no, you know, mild matter. Um, and we are, we know routinely, people are not having these allergy tested t- tests. So you know, all of those things are breaking the health and safety laws, which is a criminal breach, because it can result in someone's severe harm and death. It's also, you know, if you're not obtaining someone's informed consent freely given and you are assaulting them, because if you're giving them medical treatment without their consent freely given, you are assaulting them, you are battering them, okay? And that's, you know, contained in both the tort of negligence and in our criminal codes under the Offences Against the Person Act and Criminal Justice Act, etc. So the moment that someone is... um, has their skin pierced by the injection. They've been wounded under Section 20 of the Offences Against the Person Act. That wounding is only lawful if the person consented to it. And they only consent to it if they've been given all the the material risks and it was freely given and they have competency and they have capacity, etc. Do you know what, Anna? When you you put it like that, as... When you put it like that, it's open and shut. And I did, obviously, I did my research today knowing you were coming on and having seen you give interviews elsewhere, I've cross-referenced that information myself and everything you've said there is 100% right. And we're back then to the judiciary. We're back then to judges that have been brainwashed who should look at that and say, well, yes, it's obvious. This person can't lose their job. This company cannot compel them to have this jab. But you're back then to the government getting away with murder, with emergency powers, and judges thinking, well, judges thinking, Anna, well, well, these are extraordinary times. So we'll just Uh, ignore all of that law. We'll ignore all of that law. And we'll tell the employee, uh, shut up and do your civic duty and have the jab or get out of my courtroom and, and consider yourself fired. That's that's right. where well, we are. Can yeah. I come back on that? I oh, do, hundred percent. Well, okay. So for anyone who's listening who is trying to enforce these things on the grounds that it's a public health emergency, no. Under the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, again, 
it cites the fact that we have the inalienable fundamental right to life and the right not to be tortured and receive um, inhumane degrading treatment, which includes medical treatment without informed consent. It specifically says it in that particular human rights instrument. And then paragraph 58 of the Syracuse Principles, Okay, which was basically a group of people got together in Syracuse, Italy, and said too many governments are trying to derogate from rights, claiming, you know, public health emergencies. So we're going to review all of this and and determine which rights can be derogated from and in what circumstances. Paragraph eight of those principles, known as the Syracuse principles, specifically says that there is no right to derogate from the right to life or the right not to be tortured, etc., in public health emergencies, even when they are threatening the life of the nation. And the point being there that you don't get to threaten an individual's life, right to life, or torture them, or you know subject them to medical procedures without their consent, as they did in the Third Reich, in the prisoner of war camps, etc. Yeah. You don't get to do that, even to prisoners of war. The war conventions specifically state that means and methods of warfare are not unlimited. And of the limitations that are placed on um, warring nations, one of them is that you cannot subject individuals to medical treatment or experimentation without their informed consent freely given. So the idea that states or companies or the NHS or schools and threaten the right to life or, or, as I say, give them medical treatment without their consent in a public health emergency. No. Paragraph 58, Syracuse Principles specifically prohibits that. And the Fair Work Commission in Australia heard a case recently. It was called Kimber, um, decided this year. I think it was five or six weeks ago. And one of the judges in there goes through that specific point about mandating vaccines on the premise that it's a public health emergency threatening the life of the nation and quotes paragraph 58 of the Syracuse principles and applies it and says, you don't get to do this. This is against the law. It's a breach of international law. This is hugely interesting. Uh, there, there, There are quite a few questions about precedent. You'll probably guess what the questions are. You know, that if a judge here was courageous enough to enforce the law as you've laid it out, would that be a great thing in terms of precedent? We'll come back to that, but God, we've got a lot of... um, I normally get hundreds, generally hundreds of comments during a programme through the website. Um, You've crashed the website. It's it's gone down a couple of times. That's a good thing. No, no, it's back online now. It's a good thing. There's so much interest in it. Anna de Buissere is our guest. She's a senior UK lawyer, a retired army officer, and at one time was a Pfizer management consultant. I'm so glad that Anna is with us. Angela said, Richie, please ask uh, Anna this. My company is discriminating against me because I won't take a lateral flow test. Is this legal? Can they compel me to have this lateral flow test? No, again, it's a breach of the fundamental right to bodily integrity. And again, you know, if they're imposing one, they have to give the the employee an individual risk assessment and prove to them that they're not going to be harmed by it. Now, on the evidence, we know that these tests have got um, ethylene oxide on them. Um, there's been evidence that they have loose fibres which come off into the nasal passage and go down into the lungs and can start the process of um, lung fibrosis. 
And we've also had evidence that there may be graphene oxide on them too. Okay, or some of that needs to be investigated by the employer. Now, in addition to that, there's problems with um, it crossing the blood-brain barrier. And also there is the knock-on effect of the fact that these tests are proved to be 97% false positive in the case of the RCT-PCR test, as found by the Portuguese Court of Appeal last year. And therefore, if someone's being forced to take a test, it's going to be a breach of their well-being because if they get a 97% false positive and they then have to take time off work and isolate and be stressed and worried about the fact they might be ill when actually it's all the false test because it's yeah. fraudulent on the evidence, then imposing that is a breach of their well-being, which is part of their health and safety. It's not just about health and safety. It's part of its well-being as well. So, you know, imposing tests which breach bodily integrity without informed consent of the risks and without it being freely given, which a mandate breaches, again, is a breach of the employment contract. Um, And can I just add there, there is a duty of care owed by the employer to the employee. Um, And that duty of care is an absolute, you know, they don't get to to discretionary exercise that. It's a must. They must exercise their duty of care. And the duty of care is, to first do no harm. So if they're causing any harm, they're in breach of that fundamental duty of care and that fundamental common law principle. I hope that's of use to Angela. I'm sure it will be. Gavin is expressing frustration with something. In fact, quite a few listeners are expressing frustration with this. We sometimes, when we read books or fictional books or we watch fictional dramas, we will see a judge and a judge will say, listen, I am compelled to give a certain sentence. There is a mandatory sentence and I can't uh, do any more. My hands are tied. And on that, listeners are saying, Richie, we have the Nuremberg Code, the Council of Europe Resolution and Human Rights Laws. Why aren't those cast in stone in such a way that a judge cannot ignore them? You know, why Why are judges not compelled uh, to follow? Like, you, you've given us the impression, and maybe I've gotten the wrong impression, that judges can interpret these laws in in some way, rather than be bound by them. You know what I mean? Uh, okay, well, the, the, basically everyone is bound by the rule of law, including judges. Yeah. And the judicial oath, of course, includes upholding, you know, they have an oath of allegiance to the Crown, and the Crown's oath of allegiance is to us, we the people, to uphold our laws, okay, which include, you know, God's laws, customs, practices, um, common common law and our statutes as agreed upon. So the statutes we've agreed upon, not the ones that have been imposed without consent. So a judge is required to uphold all of those laws. And if they're standing under their oath, they will be. Um, what I think the confusion is possibly from the public is, of course, when it comes to interpreting laws, there are various different rules about statutory interpretation. And so you may hear a judge saying, well, there's a strict interpretation of the statute. But in these particular circumstances, that strict interpretation would be unjust or wouldn't apply, etc. And so they make an exception and they would be entitled to do that depending on the circumstances and the facts. So, you know, it's not a straightforward practice, the practice of law, unfortunately, where you can have, you know, strict bindings like that. But 
as I say, any judge standing under their oath has to uphold the rule of law. That does include the Nuremberg Code. And the Nuremberg judgments from the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War included judgments against the judges and lawyers who were found guilty um, because judges and lawyers at that time, some of them had passed the laws that caused harm. Some of them had, you know, turned a blind eye. That's right. And some of them, when they were given the opportunity to put laws right, didn't. You know, they followed the, um, you know, the dictate the dictates of uh, the, the Third Reich. Um, so we are seeing something similar to that at the moment. We're having those judges who claim they don't know what's going on. Um, we've got those judges who I'm sure are the victims of the psychological warfare. So they literally do believe um, a narrative which is clearly not right on the evidence. And then there are those who are clearly complicit because there are complicit people in every profession, sadly. Senior lawyer Anna de Buissere is our guest. We've got Anna for about another 12 minutes or thereabouts. Thanks for giving us your time today. These are important um, answers to questions that, you know, stump lay people like me and, and many of my listeners. Lee was on the programme the other evening. He's a restaurateur in, uh, in Yorkshire. Lovely bloke. He, he asks about administering jabs to adults with autism or disability who can't give informed consent. That's a really interesting one because I'm sure there is a protocol going back years for people who can't personally give informed consent but might need a, a medical procedure. Does the COVID jab, is, is it covered, the, the, the COVID jab covered by previous statutes or previous laws around that? Well, yes, again, because the Nuremberg Code says that someone must have the capacity to give their voluntary consent. And capacity means that they are competent to understand the material risks and use and weigh up the information given to them and then apply yeah. it. And capacity means, as you say, whether or not they actually have a disturbance in the mind or the functioning of the brain, which means that they can't weigh up the, inf you know, they don't have the competence. So um, with adults um, in a clinical trial using a human medicine, which this is what this is, um, that's set out in the human um, medicines for uh, use so is it human? Oh gosh, I can't remember the exact name of the regulations. Clinical trials regulations, two thousand and four. That sets out basically the um, the fact that any clinical trial must be conducted in accordance with good, good clinical practice and in accordance with the Helsinki Declaration, which includes the Nuremberg Code. And that specifically says that if adults don't have capacity, then specific provisions apply, which are set out in the schedule to those regulations. But that would be what would be referring to, uh, sorry, in that they would be referring to the Mental Capacity Act 2005, which specifically states how someone's capacity um, must be assessed their ability to decide um, so it's quite it's very complicated, very complicated but yeah. basically the starting point is that everyone's assumed to have capacity unless it's proved that they don't um, and so obviously if you have a condition such as dementia or autism then you know on the face of it you don't have capacity and then there are certain rules about how you have to take someone through that capacity assessment for their ability to give consent 
Anna, thanks for these answers. And if my questions are repetitious, I apologise because we keep Not coming back. No, we keep coming back to Nuremberg Code, and it must be driving you blooming mad. When will no, we ever I, understand? I, but but no, I hear yeah. you. Um, we've had a, an interesting one from Jane. Jane met 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 you at the uh, protest on Saturday. Uh, Jane says, Richie, a friend in HR, uh, the company is pushing the global mandate. Um, she has control of the United Kingdom, says Jane. Is there any case law anywhere that she can use to prevent this mandate in Europe? Any help, advice or direction would be great. Uh, she's desperate to do something. Is this HR person who's being asked to, uh, you know, to push the... Uh, the jab on people. I, I'm kind of guessing you're going to yeah. give an answer you've given earlier on, but that's the Off question anyway. Off the top of my head, I think the case is called Pretty um, against the United Kingdom, and it was held that, um, oh, here we go. Uh, yeah, case law of the European Court of Human Rights establishes that the provision of medical treatment without consent constitutes an interference with Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. So, um, and I think the case was Pretty versus the United Kingdom, but I don't have the reference in front of me, I'm afraid. But yes, it has already been held to be a breach of fundamental, um, again, right to the bodily integrity, right to privacy, because the right to privacy includes the right to bodily integrity, right? You've got a massive old brain on you. I wouldn't dare to patronise you or butter you up. But uh, I used to work with a lawyer in Waterford many years ago during my during my um, uh, commercial radio days, a gentleman called Paul Foskin, and you remind me of him. Instant recall. It's amazing. I wouldn't like to get into an argument with you if we were a couple. You'd remember everything I ever did, ever. <laughs> There'd be murders. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. My mum my mom had a photographic memory, and she's passed it on to me. I, I can read stuff, and I just remember it. I'm very blessed. It's a gift, Anna. It's an absolute gift. May I ask you a personal question? Not a personal 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 question but what um at some stage i think most people at some stage who understand that something is wrong with jobs being pushed on people that they very well may not need people start to wonder about lockdowns that are obviously doing nothing to stop the transmission of anything and in fact are doing great harm to health at some stage we all wonder is there something more sinister going on we hear about great resets about people who want to take the world in a different direction and have more control over people's lives do you concern yourself with those things or can you not afford to do that because you've got enough to be oh, dealing with the law? Gosh, oh, absolutely. I've been studying these things for years. Um, you know, when people talk about um, what's fact and what's a theory, you have to look at what's actually available for the, in the public domain at the best sources. So you go to the source of the um, evidence. So, for example, when people say, well, the World Economic Forum Great Reset is just a theory. No, it's not. Go onto the World Economic Forum website itself and you will see it talks all about the Great Reset. Now, that is an agenda. Okay, so it's what they're planning to do. It's the same with the Sustainable Climate Change Agenda 21 and Agenda 30, which are United Nations agendas. If you go onto the United Nations own website and you put the, the, 
search term in, you can download the PDF of those agendas and read them for yourself. That's a theory. Those are stated agendas. And when you read those agendas, they are bone chilling. Because, you know, they are they are a dystopian future, unless you happen to be one of the few people who agree with it, because virtually every single person I've spoken to um, thinks that these agendas are nightmarish beyond our worst nightmares. Is that the genius of it in some way? That it's beyond the scope of even the most intelligent people. I know some wonderfully intelligent people, well-read, well-educated, can hold a conversation with anybody, problem solvers. Yet you mentioned this to the manor and, will you stop, will you? Will you go away out of it? Were you watching Bond villain films or something like that? Is the awfulness of it almost part of its genius that people just can't imagine it? Well, again, I go back to the psychological warfare that's being conducted on people. Um, and the evidence from these experts is that it is cult-level programming. So people have, who have succumbed to the warfare have literally been inducted into a cult, the COVID cult. And once they hear certain sentences, their brain has been you know, programmed to respond in certain ways. And it's hardwired in that way now. So to try and get past that programming with evidence and statistics and facts is nigh on impossible. There has to be different ways to talk to people depending on what level of brainwashing they've succumbed to, unfortunately. Can you suggest any? Um, Can you suggest any? Off the top of your well, head. Well, <laughs> yes, I'm told that the um, one of the ways to do it is pattern interrupt. So, for example, um, if you say, you know, um, you've got to wear a mask because, you know, my grandma died of COVID because you didn't wear one. And you say, did you know it, tra- it transforms aeros- um, droplets into aerosols? Right. Something <laughs> that they're not being told about. Yeah. It causes a pattern interrupt and it questions the whole narrative of they're safe and effective and stop transmission, etc., and helps people get past that hardwire programming. But Richie, look, I'm not an expert in this. And that's one of the things I'm doing. I'm, I'm meeting with these experts, hopefully in the course of the next week, who have got some affidavits for me, apparently. And part of that is how people deal with the brainwashing and getting through to the people who have succumbed. But, you know, it, it also means we have to be compassionate rather than judgmental because these are victims. You know, they've been a victim of a terror campaign. Well said, Which, Anna. Way, well said. And, and there are, they, are, they are our friends, our family and our neighbours as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they've succumbed. And, you know, that's another breach of the war conventions because um, even in the times of war, you are not allowed to conduct a t- campaign of terror. And I mean, the number of people who have who've t- committed suicide who have stayed in their home for a year, who have foregone seeing their loved ones, etc., because of the fear and terror that they've been, you know, have been put into that state. And of course, we know that fear means it interrupts our ability to think rationally and to, and to process information. So again, people who are still stuck in the fear mode are victims. They are indeed. Laura Dodsworth, I, I read some of the book, um, took took that on the government psychological 
um, the, the nudge unit and all of that, trying to nudge people. And they're even admitting now on some level, some of them are admitting that the masks really don't do very much. But but it's good to remind people that there's a, that there's a pandemic. I mean, that is terribly mendacious, isn't it? You know, oh, we, we admit now that the max, masks don't do very much, you know. I saw a Cambridge academic on talk radio last week basically acknowledging that they don't stop transmission. And somebody else said, well, at le- but at least they remind people that there's a pandemic. It's dreadful oh, stuff. Dreadful. Richie, Richie, can I just say, the, the evidence is that in um, ni- uh, 1918, a Dr. W.H. Kellogg did a meta-analysis of all the mask mandates that were used in America to combat the spread of the Spanish flu, which incidentally turned out to be a bacterial um, killer because Dr. Fauci in 2008, who did all the autopsies, decided that actually the cause of death in the Spanish flu was actually secondary bacterial lung pneumonia. Now, W.H. Kellogg asserted that in his meta-analysis and he published his findings and said that masks were a disaster, they increased the risk of transmission and increased the risk of bacterial infections. The US Surgeon General in 1920 picked up WH's report and condoned it and said that the use of what mask wearing in the Spanish flu was an absolute disaster and it should never have happened, never should have happened. It increased the risk of transmission and it increased the risk of bacterial infections. So they've known for a hundred years that it's not that they don't work and that they cause these problems. Part of the psychological fear programme, no doubt then, knowing this Mm. and then forcing them on people. And I'm pretty sure that give it a couple of weeks, Anna, and they will say, right, no more shopping without these masks again, no more going to the cinema, and presumably most people will will just go along with it. We're, we're, we're nearly at the end of our time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the programme at short notice as well. I do really appreciate it. Uh, do consider yourself um, to have an open door to come back any time that there's you know, information to impart and things to discuss. I'd be delighted to have you back any time. I'm grateful for you f- for coming on. I'll give you the final word. I know you're on Facebook. Uh, there are listeners who'd like to say hello to you. I'm sure there are others who want to bombard you with um, <laughs> questions, even though your inbox is, is collapsing under the weight of the inquiries you've already had. Um, but it, but Facebook, maybe people can find you on there. You're, you're on there as Anna De Bwiskit. Is that right? Oh, do you know, actually, Richie, that was my personal profile. Um, I'd prefer people to contact me on my professional one, which is the Anna de Buissere one on Facebook, or on the on Telegram, on the Informed Consent Campaign Telegram channel. Um, I don't have the address off the top of my head, but I think people find it on there. But we've also got the Informed Consent Alliance website up and running now. So what I can do, Richie, is send you the links to those places, um, and people can find me there because uh, what we are doing is we're going to upload the latest notice of liabilities up on those websites so that people can access those and send them off to, for example, their employers who want, you know, who are imposing these things on them. And that means that they've got all the law in there and they can use that as a starting point, which they themselves can serve without the help of a lawyer um, and take it from there. Brilliant. I'm going to throw I'm going to throw a grenade at you because of the military <laughs> connection, which I shouldn't do because we've only got ninety seconds. I should have said this earlier. Aren't the you? I'm a trade unionist, Anna, or I was for years. Aren't the unions a pigging disgrace? 
at not looking in, after the, aren't they terrible at this time in short yeah yeah i'm horrified i am uh, you know they are there to protect and to help and not everyone can afford a lawyer where else do people go you know if they can't turn to their unions you know that's absolute dereliction of duty in my view come back again please um at your leisure, when there's more to talk about. For for, for now, though, uh, a thousand thanks for coming on and answering those questions this evening, Anna. And it's uh, been great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you, Richie, for giving me a platform. Bless you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And stand in your sovereignty. Remember, you're all equal in the in, in, under the rule of law. You've all got equal protection of the law. So stand your ground, enforce your rights, and and do that by learning your rights. You know, and that's one of the main things. If you learn your rights, then you can uphold them. Thank you, Anna. How brilliant was Anna? Anna de Buissere, lawyer, a former military officer, management consultant advisor. We might talk about that in the in the future. Maybe we won't. Uh, thanks so much to her for coming on. Find her professional profile on Facebook. Find her on Telegram. When I get the links, I'll put them on the Comment Live page on my website. Uh, thanks again to Anna. And thank you for your comments and for your, for your messages and questions during that segment. It's coming up now for five minutes to uh, the top of the hour. I don't have time to start reading your comments. There are many of them. I've only got time really to, to give a quick plug to a Sunday Morning Melodies, which is uh, a programme I love doing at the end of the week. It's a programme which uh, is on Sundays at uh, 10 o'clock UK time, so it is. Sunday Yeah, that jingle should have the time, shouldn't it, on it? It's at 10 o'clock on, on Sundays. I play a few tunes with a few stories. We have a couple of giggles sometimes. It's two hours of old school uh, throwback radio, and it can only be heard on richieallen.co.uk, and then it's repeated a few times in the afternoon, but it isn't archived. It might not be for you. And that's okay too, of course it is. But if it is your thing, uh, do join me at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now, that's it for me. Big shout to uh, Kate Shemarani. Great sport is Kate, because I gave her a bit of a chasing back in July, but she stood up to it back in July and came back at me. It was a good exchange. And I said to her at the time, listen, come back on again. Uh, there was a very good reason to invite her on today, uh, the mandate. So uh, thanks to Kate for that. And, uh, and again, thanks to the lawyer, Anna de Buissere, for her time on the programme this evening. I'm going out, speaking of Sunday morning melodies, with a tune that I played on that programme back, uh, way back in the late winter, last winter. It's a live version of Simon and Garfunkel singing Bridge Over Troubled Water at Madison Square Garden a few ye- only a few years ago at the Hall of Fame's, I think, 25th anniversary. And it's lovely. From your BBG, enjoy your weekend, take care of yourselves and one another, and join me on Sunday if you can attend. Bye for now. Bye now.